good morning. Uh, I'm Andre Rigo Sureda. I'm originally from Spain. I have spent uh, most of my professional life uh, at the World Bank from 1973 to 2000. Uh, I uh, worked always uh, as a lawyer, uh, as counsel in the institution, in various pos positions. Um, I was chief counsel for the Africa region for 10 years, from 82 to 92. And from 92 to th 2000, I was the assistant general counsel and the deputy general counsel for, op for operations. And uh, the lecture today is, uh, in a certain way, uh, a lecture on my experience on the institution and on the years uh, I was uh, in the legal department, nowadays the legal vice presidency of the World Bank. Uh, let me start by giving you an outline of, uh, of the lecture. I will give a very brief in introduction, an overview of the institutional and operational aspects of the work of, of the World Bank, and then concentrate on the international legal aspects, both from an institutional point of view and an operational point of view. Uh, basically, it's about one-third of background and overview, uh, one-third on the institutional side, and one-third on the operational side. Let me start with the introduction. One has to look at the World Bank and uh, uh, the other institutions that through the years have replicated uh, the model of the World Bank in the regional development banks, for instance, is that it is an international organization. It's a financial intermediary. Those are institutions that borrow funds in the capital markets, in the private capital markets of the world. In addition, also they borrow, they may borrow funds from governments and is a development institution. And these three aspects interplay, and we will see how they interplay in the course of this lecture. As historical background, uh, one has to bear in mind uh, that the World Bank is a response to the pre-Second World War uh, experience, and experience of the Great Depression. There were during this period competitive devaluations uh, countries to defend themselves, uh, increase their tariffs, and uh, in a way, the trade tariffs, uh, they put barriers, they discriminated against each other, and they borrow extensively for general purposes and uh, mostly for budget purposes, for expenses which were not productive. For the drafters of the articles, of agreement, which is the constituent uh, uh, instrument of uh, the institution. And, uh, and you have to bear in mind that the World Bank was established at uh, the same time as the International Monetary Fund. And originally, there was to be also a third institution dedicated to trade, the International Trade Organization, that never got off the ground at that time, and that we have to wait for several decades before we have the World Trade Organization. So uh, going back uh, to the World Bank and to a certain extent to the IMF, uh, the 
drafters of the, the, of the documents and the uh, movers behind the establishment of these institutions, they had a belief in internationalism to solve economic problems. And uh, given the experience that I mentioned earlier of the 1930s, there was also a belief in that the private sector could solve problems, but you needed the public sector to act in a counter-cyclical fashion during economic downturns. The, uh, in terms of uh, who were mainly the authors of the charters, uh, the Articles of Agreement, as they are called, of the World Bank and the IMF, uh, were Lord Keynes, a famous British economist, and Harry White, a high-level officer of uh, the United States Treasury. And the negotiations uh, for the Articles of Agreement uh, lasted a number of years. There were changes of drafts, etc. I think what's interesting is how these uh, gentlemen were concerned about what would happen after the war. And they realized that whoever won the war, you would need to reestablish the economic system to reestablish uh, a trade system, and that you will need tremendous funds for the reconstruction of the massive destruction that had happened during the war. And that's what they had in mind as a role for these institutions. Now, the negotiations, the final ones, took place in Bretton Woods, hence in New Hampshire, in the United States, hence the name of the Bretton Woods institutions for the IMF and, and the World Bank. They took place in July 1944, and the bank opened for business in 1945. Uh, I think the first matter I want to emphasize on the legal side is that the World Bank is a subject of international law. It has international legal personality, even if it is not expressed that way in the Articles of Agreement. There was uncertainty at the time uh, when it was established whether international organizations had international legal personality. There was a proposal when the UN Charter was negotiated by the Belgian delegation to say so explicitly that it had legal personality, and it was turned down because there was a concern that to admit that an international organization had international legal personality, meant to create a supranational authority to have the accoutrements of a state. It was only after the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice in the reparations case, in the reparations advisory opinion, where uh, the court unbundled somehow international legal personality and said that personality is implicit in the functions of the institution. It depends on the functions it has and the various degrees of, of, of functions and personality necessary to accomplish them. And it separated sovereignty from international personality. I think uh, the fact that is a subject of international law, it means that it's bound by the norms of public international law in its activities. Uh, I think is a fact that is less well known normally, but is a specialized 
Agency of the United Nations, and its functions and powers are determined by the Articles of Agreement. As an institution, uh, it has the character of an executive institution, and I mean by that that it discharges its functions primarily through external operations and not through recommendations. And this character of the, as a, an executive institution, and at the same time, the financial structure it has, and on which I will expand a little bit later, were a very novel experiment for an international organization. And the drafters of the Articles of Agreement, both for the IMF and for the World Bank, they were concerned on how specific they should be in the establishment agreements. What would, should they cover? And Lord Keynes, who was one of the main authors, uh, said, and I'm quote here, I'm reading from what he uh, commented, says, perhaps the most difficult question to determine is how much to decide by rule and how much to leave to discretion. All this is the typical problem of any supranational authority. An earlier draft of this proposal was criticized for leaning too much to the side of rule. In the provisions below, which was the draft that he was considering at the time he made this comment, the bias is in the other direction. For it may be better not to attempt to settle too much beforehand. Only by collective wisdom and discussion can the right compromise be reached between law and license. The outcome was a rather succinct document. They left a lot to how matters will evolve and what circumstances there will be in the future. The Articles of Agreement have general principles of operation and a number of inbuilt mechanisms to adapt the institution to change. Hence, the value of what is the practice of the institution, in fact, to get to know uh, the World Bank, to get to know the IMF. And that's what the lecture concentrates on. Uh, I had mentioned that the World Bank has been replicated in a number of other institutions which had, if you wish, copied the, the structure and the philosophy in various ways. And that's uh, mostly what are the regional banks, like the Inter-American Development Bank, Bank, the African Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Asian Development Bank, etc. And they did so to try to get more uh, additional funding for, for the region, to have more regional control of the institutions than they could have as regional countries in a world institution like the World Bank, and also to have perhaps different policies, at least originally. Uh, and this was particularly the case of the Inter-American Development Bank that had an interest in having uh, an institution more socially oriented than the World Bank was at the very beginning of its operation. It's obviously not anymore the case. I think from an international law perspective, to consider the multilateral development banks, as usually are called generically, uh, is uh, very interesting from 
the progression that has happened and how in replicating the model they have adopted the practice from each other and one can see the growth both in what development means, what the project means, etc., and uh, other key concepts of these institutions. And I, uh, while the lecture is on the World Bank, occasionally I will allow myself to make references uh, to the other institutions, how they had handled particular issues, or to what extent, who has copied whom, or who had followed rather than copy, which seems to have a negative connotation, had followed the, the practice of another institution. Uh, this by way of introduction. Uh, let me go uh, now to give you an overview of the institutional aspects. First, membership. Uh, in the case of the World Bank, and when I talk about the World Bank, maybe I should uh, have a, a brief clarification here. I'm talking about the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Otherwise, IBRD is the acronym, is popularly known as the World Bank, but the World Bank Group as such uh, includes a number of institutions, uh, not only the IBRD. The lecture focuses on the IBRD, on the original institution of the World Bank. Uh, I may, again, make references to the other, but very, very briefly because uh, simply the, there is no time in, in this lecture to cover the whole group. So uh, going back to membership of the IBRD is uh, restricted to states, so only states may be members. In the case of the Asian Development Bank, the establishing uh, agreement uh, permits uh, associate membership for dependent territories in those days in Asia. And in the one of the most recent ones, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development uh, has international organizations as members. For, for instance, uh, the European Investment Bank is a member of the EBRD. There are interrelationships in the memberships that one should be aware of. Uh, for instance, uh, membership of the IMF is, conditionally, is a condition for being a member of uh, the World Bank. Uh, in the group of the World Bank, to be a member of the IBRD is a condition to be a member of the other institutions in the group. To be a member of the Inter-American Development Bank for regional members, uh, is uh, as a, they have to be members of the organization of the American states, and the non-regional members have to be members of the IMF, and so forth. So I just want to mention it in terms that you, you realize that there are these uh, interlocking uh, memberships. Now, in terms of, we have talked about membership, in terms of organizational uh, structure, uh, there is a a plenary organ called uh, the Board of Governors, and every country may appoint, every member country may appoint a governor and an alternate governor. And all the powers of the institution are vested in the Board of Governors, with a very few exceptions mandated in the Articles of Agreement. Uh, the Board of Governors has delegated its powers to the executive directors. Now, who are the executive directors? They are really the executive organ of the institution. Uh, they are a resident board, 
they uh, can meet continuously at any time, and they are responsible for the general direction of the operations of the institution. There are currently 24. Now, the IBRD has 185 members. There are 185 governors in the Board of Governors, but there are only 24 executive directors. These 24 executive directors are appointed five by the five largest shareholders, and I will tell you later who they are, and the remainder are elected by the rest of the countries. So, the Board of Governors, the Board of Executive Directors, the President. Those are the three organs. The President of the, the World Bank is responsible for conducting the ordinary business of the bank under the direction of the Executive Directors. He is the Chairman of the Board of Executive Directors. And if you compare it, for instance, from with the United Nations and the Secretary General of the United Nations, while the Secretary General heads the Secretariat of the United Nations, uh, the Secretary General doesn't chair the Security Council or the General Assembly. Uh, the World Bank, the uh, Board of Executive Directors, the Executive Board, is chaired by the President of the institution, which also is the head of the staff and is the legal representative of the institution. So this is uh, uh, when I talked about the executive character of the institution, I think you see it reflected also on the various powers of the organs of the institution and how they interact with each other. Now, there, was a cert there is a certain ambiguity in the Articles of Agreement terms of the powers of the executive director and the president. And this was a problem at the very beginning of the institution. The first president resigned and after less than one year in the job. And the new president made sure that he, the matter was solved before he took over the, the job. And it was solved as follows. The executive directors are responsible for deciding all matters of policy, including the approval of loans that the World Bank makes. And on the other hand, management, represented by the president, is responsible for preparing the policy recommendations to the board of executive directors. I have talked uh, about the organizational structure. Uh, I should have a word on the capital structure of the institution since uh, it is uh, a bank, is a financial institution, and this is very important that at least very briefly I touch upon it. It has a subscribed capital of 189.8, basically $190 billion, of which only 11.5 billion have been paid in. The remainder portion is called the callable portion. And that portion can be called only to meet obligations for borrowings of the World Bank or guarantees that he has given. And uh, this is, uh, if you wish, one of the novelties of the institution uh, is that only a portion of the capital has been paid in. So uh, taking into account 
all the loans that the bank makes and that go in billions and billions and, uh, and, and with how little money it has leveraged all the financial support that has given. As I was saying, this is one of the original traits of the institution that has worked very well and that there have been confidence that the shareholders of the institution, if needed, they would be there to back up the operations of the bank with this callable portion. Now, uh, how, you know, this capital is represented by shares, like in a corporation, and to become a member, uh, you subscribe to them. Now, how do you distribute the shares? Because, as I said, uh, not all the not all the members uh, have the same power within the institution, and I'm going to go over that in more detail later. So, how are the shares allocated? They normally reflect, in general terms, they reflect the distribution of quarters, as they are called, the IMF among members. So the sort of the power of the various members in the IMF is reflected in the World Bank through the distribution of shares. And the quarters of the IMF, in very general terms, there is a complicated way of calculating it, but the basic idea is that the economic weight of a country in worldwide is somehow how the quarter then is reflected in the institution, in the IMF, and then subsidiarily in, in the World Bank. The five largest shareholders in this distribution of shares are the United States, which currently has 16.4% of the total voting power of the World Bank, Japan with 79 Germany 4.5, France 4.3, and the United Kingdom 4.3. So these five shareholders appoint each one member of the executive board, and the remainder 19, there are 24, are uh, elected by the other countries that can arrange themselves as they please for purposes of the election of the executive directors. Now, how are the decisions made? Uh, obviously, there is weighted voting because uh, not all the shareholders have the same uh, power. Uh, by and large, uh, decisions are by simple majority. There are a few that require qualified majorities and different percentages that I'm not going to get into for purposes of amending the articles of agreement or increasing capital of the institution. Uh, there are, for a very few things, is unanimity is required. For instance, if one would amend the right of first refusal that shareholders has, have when <coughs> new shares are issued to maintain their relative weight in the institution. Now, immediately may come to your mind what happened with the votes, because there are obviously many executive directors that uh, represent many shareholders. So uh, how do they vote? They might receive contradictory instructions, may receive no instructions. 
there are some that represent more than 20 countries uh, each. So particularly the two African, two of the African executive directors. So uh, there is uh, totally up to them how they would vote, to the individual and their conscience and the interest of the institution. Uh, there are uh, some of the charters of more recent institutions have taken care of this fact. For instance, the Asian Development Bank and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, they allow for a split vote. I mean, so depending who gives instruction, how many votes that party has, the executive director can vote those votes in favor of a particular proposition and perhaps another set of votes against it. Now, uh, while this may look very hard in the sense that uh, it looks that a few large shareholders have a substantial portion of the votes and of the control of the institution, in fact, I would say there is a softening of the weighted voting by a number of factors. First, the all shareholders get free votes just by the fact that they are members. Not many, 250. Uh, the meetings really are more by consensus than by voting. Voting is uh, something which is done rarely, actually formal voting. Uh, if there is an important matter on which is really uh, uh, institutionally uh, very important that uh, there be a consensus, there are informal meetings of the executive directors, there are seminars, there are briefings. So to build up uh, information, to answer questions by management, and to build up the consensus. The board also works through committees, and, and they do substantive work. These committees are not based on uh, how powerful you are in terms of shares but usually are uh, with eight members, uh, four from developing countries, four from developed countries. And I think last, uh, uh, there is the issue that is a resident board and the voice of individual members is very important. How uh, informed you are, how reasonable you are, how good are in your personal relationships with other board members. When you have been there a number of years, there are board members who are more respected than others, let me put it that way, in the sense that uh, they have influence because they are good sense and because they are consensus builders. And I think all these factors in terms of how the institution works are very important to look at beyond purely who has more votes or less votes in the institution. Uh, that uh, concludes my overview on the institutional side. Let me uh, now uh, go to the operational side, again, to give you a contest for what I will say later on operations. First of all, is to emphasize what the objective of the IBRD, of the World Bank, is, which is to facilitate the investment of capital for productive purposes is the development of productive facilities. And what I'm reading are quotes from Article 1 of the Articles of Agreement. is to promote the long-range balanced growth of international trade 
and the maintenance of equilibrium imbalance of payments by encouraging international investment for the development of the productive resources of members, thereby assisting in, re in ra raising productivity. Uh, the concept in the articles is a, a concept of economic development, that this productivity, what it will generate, uh, is an emphasis on economic development. And you have to see it in the context of the experience that I mentioned earlier uh, before World War II. And this concept of development has proved to be very flexible over the years, and, and though the articles refer to economic development. Uh, it has been flexible enough to accommodate the expansion of activities of the institution in the social sectors, human development, rule of law, the environment, etc. And some of the mm, articles of agreement, the establishing agreements of the other banks, uh, have taken notice of that and somehow have incorporated, if you wish, all these notions in, in the articles, including, for instance, multi-party democracy in the case of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which is something I, is a, a special thing in the context of the multilateral development banks, and I will talk about it towards the end of the lecture. Now, uh, the, uh, another aspect of the overview of uh, the operational side of the institution is the principles of operation that are in the articles. One is that uh, the institution is a last resort institution. So you lend when there is no money for what you think is worthwhile from a productive purpose point of view that the, a particular member country undertakes and that there is no money on reasonable terms for it. So it's a last resort institution. The use of funds have to be used and there is control for the purpose for which it's granted. It's not just a sort of funds for anything. Uh, there are considerations of economy and efficiency to be taken into account on how the funds are used. Uh, the institution should not have politically political consideration or political regime in terms of how it makes its decisions. This is the exception that I mentioned before of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. But all the others are not supposed to, if you wish, play politics with their decisions. The disbursement has to be for expenditures uh, as incurred. The resources are untied, that it means that there will be competitive bidding uh, for uh, contracts financed by these institutions. They cannot say the contract has to be financed, uh, has to be awarded to a particular company or to a company from a particular member countries. All the contractors, service firms, etc., from each of the member countries may participate in the bidding for contracts that are financed by the World Bank and also by the other institutions. In the case of the World Bank, uh, uh, an important operational principle is that if uh, the loan is made not to a member country, it has to have the guarantee of the member country where the project is located. 
the lending per se has to be for a specific project and the idea of a specific project is that there is a productivity connotation. There is this concern with productivity and that funds are not mis misused or they are not for general purposes, at least in, in principle. And that the resources are directed to carefully define undertakings and that there is an agreement on what goods and services are going to be used. Of course, there are exceptions and they are recognized in the Articles of Agreement of uh, DIBRD. It says that in special circumstances, uh, the IBRD can lend for other than a specific projects. And this is, in one way or another, is recognized also in the African Development Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, in the last two banks it says principally for projects, which means not principally can lend also for other matters. In the case of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development is no exceptions, only for projects. <coughs> now, what are these special circumstances that would justify uh, non-project lending? One is, for instance, reconstruction of monetary systems after collapse of a particular monetary systems, long-term stabilization loans, balance of payment support that normally has been given uh, liberally in the last three decades under the name of a structural adjustment, lending, debt and debt service uh, reduction has been another way of justifying it under the articles, under the provision of uh, special circumstances. How this uh, lending is instrumented is uh, you have loan agreements, uh, guarantees uh, in the case of the World Bank if the loan is not made uh, to member countries. Uh, exceptionally, the bank gives grants. There's something I will mention uh, in, in the future. There is associated technical assistance with uh, the, the loans made by the institution. The recipients may be governor, governments, uh, subnational units, public enterprises, private uh, corporations, NGOs. I mean, there is no limit on who may be the borrower or the beneficiary of, of the funds. This completes uh, my uh, overview on the operational and the institutional side.